I'm Trisha, and welcome to Is It Recess Yet? Confessions of a Former Child Prodigy, a podcast about my years as a teenage concert violinist and my quest to evolve beyond that identity. Follow me on my journey, and along the way, you'll get an insider's look into the classical music world and listen to conversations with innovative artists who are forging new and playful paths into creativity. So let's go. Because I think I hear the recess bell. My guest today is Mina Yang, who is heard playing here in a performance of the Rondo from Schubert's A Major Sonata, D959. Mina Yang is a pianist, professor, and the author of California Polyphony, Ethnic Voices, Musical Crossroads, and Planet Beethoven, Classical Music at the Turn of the Millennium. In addition to teaching in music schools and universities throughout California, including San Francisco Conservatory, UCSD, and USC, she has served as a consultant and advisor to Disney Animation Studio, Santa Monica Museum of Art, now Institute of Contemporary Art, Amazon's Mozart in the Jungle, and Center for American Music, and has given lectures and presentations at universities, conferences, and concerts around the world. As professor at Minerva Schools at the Keck Graduate Institute, an innovative online university, Dr. Yang teaches courses in music, visual arts, and literature. I've been wanting to talk with you ever since I read your article, um, the one called East Meets West in the Concert Hall, Asians and Classical Music in the Century of Imperialism, Post-Colonialism, and Multiculturalism. Um, So I'm super excited to talk with you today about East Asians and Asian Americans and our participation in Western classical music. So I thought a good place maybe to start would be, if you're comfortable, can you tell us a little bit about your origin story? How did you start playing music? And what led you to where you are now professionally? I was born in Korea, um, but our family moved to Japan when I was three. Mm -hmm. And while I was attending elementary school there, actually even back in kindergarten, they put a violin in all of our hands. And, you know, I, I had a very rudimentary lessons in piano playing. And then we moved to Hawaii when I was eight. And it's when I was in Hawaii, I think I was about 10 or so that I started playing more seriously. And the uh, Korean community in Hawaii is not very large, but we all took piano lessons or cello lessons or, you know, some kind of lessons. Um, We were all encouraged to go to the best schools. And so, you know, it's very much this kind of story you hear about Asian immigrants and parents really pushing us um, to excel at certain activities Mm-hmm. Not so much sports, but certainly musical instruments and academic studies. Um, and then I went to Brown. And when I was in college, I really didn't want to play the piano anymore. My parents had kind of pushed me. Then my senior year in college, I started playing chamber music. And it was just, you know, a part of music that I hadn't really experienced before. It was much more social and it was just very satisfying. Um, so I just for some reason, just decided I was going to do music after college. So then I went to the New England Conservatory for my master's in piano performance and had a lot of catching up to do. But it was an amazing experience because people there are just so devoted just to making music. Um, And then after I graduated from there, I decided to get a PhD in musicology. So I've been a music professor for some time now. 
Um, now, more recently, I've been teaching more general humanities, and I'm finding that my joy in music is coming back more because I do think that, you know, when you choose music as a profession, it does start to feel like work. Absolutely. And so I wasn't playing piano that much, but but now I'm returning to it and, and I'm taking pleasure in it again, which is really nice. Because you touched on it, I was wondering, can you talk a little bit more about what you think of this trend of there being sort of like acceptable instruments to promote amongst East Asian families, especially Asian immigrant families? You know, you don't see a lot of Asian tubists, for example, or people going into jazz necessarily. So what is it specifically about Usually it's the stringed instruments, right, or the, or the piano, specifically violin or piano. Um, why, why do you think that happens? Well, I haven't done formal studies, but I do think a lot of it just has to do with the way the educational system is set up in places like Japan and Korea. So they just have these instruments on hand for students, um, and the music pedagogy is designed around teaching students how to play these instruments. Uh, Suzuki, of course, had a huge influence throughout Asia, and his method is really based on learning how to play the violin. It works for other instruments as well, but, you know, it, it, the violin is nice and small, so for small children it works well. And I think it's just because there are people who from Asia who've already succeeded in those instruments that they tend to, you know, inspire parents to push their kids in that direction as well. How did Western classical music first arrive in and then progressively boom in Eastern Asia? So a lot of it had to do with uh, the the routes of Western imperialism. So in the beginning, there were pockets of Western music in missionaries and trading posts. Uh, and then um, I think really Japan had a huge role to play because Japan saw what Western countries were doing in Asia at the turn of the 19th century, they felt that they had to modernize Japanese culture on every front. So it wasn't just building up their military, but it was also about replicating the Western educational system, and that included music. Mm -hmm. So they pretty much, you know, threw out any uh, remnants of feudal music, what they might have considered feudal music, and started um, and, and, you know, brought over people from the West to teach Western harmony, Western notation, uh, Western pedagogy. They really transformed their educational system overnight. Um, and then, of course, when Japan colonized other Asian countries, they brought that same knowledge uh, and the same philosophy. So a lot of other places picked up the same kinds of attitudes about Western music. In your article, you write specifically about piano manufacturing in Japan and then with the ascent of the Yamaha company in particular and how that kind of mirrors, again, what the piano represented in middle class homes in Western Europe. You know, the piano became um, kind of a symbol of Western gentility, domesticity, and uh, that's part of the reason why it was also associated with femininity. Mm. Um, and that that was adopted to some extent in the U.S., but it actually became adopted much more enthusiastically in Asia. And they were trying to become more modern and more cosmopolitan. Um, they really started to think about the piano and violin and these instruments as one route to achieving this kind of modernity and parity with the West. Um, and as you know, I'm sure most of your listeners know, I mean, Japan 
basically effected this amazing economic transformation after the war. Uh, and so, you know, they, they became industrial superpowers in auto production, electronics production, and piano was just another thing that they produced. And they made it a lot cheaper. Um, they made it a lot more efficient. And they exported it aggressively. And so Yamaha's became a household name even in the U.S., and certainly in Japan and, and uh, in Korea and other East, East Asian countries. And so it just, it just made it accessible for a lot of middle-class families who were wanting some way to exhibit their you know, status as middle-class. In Western Europe, the piano was a symbol of domesticity and gentility. And it also became associated with femininity because the, a woman's sphere was in the home. And because this was before the time of phonographs, a lot of the music making happened in living rooms, in you know that, that private space. And so the piano is just really important in imparting these different kinds of values. And those values became absorbed into sort of the East Asian psyche as well. To some extent, I mean, I you know, I I I think. In each location, there's definitely this kind of hybridization that happens between local values and, and cosmopolitan ones. Um, but certainly a lot of the sort of the overriding um, values associated with piano and with classical music were absorbed. The sort of anecdote that I always return to for myself is that Margaret Cho, when she was doing her first big stand-up um, solo show at Carnegie Hall, when she was first becoming famous around 2001, she stood on that particular stage and said, I'm pretty sure I'm the first Korean-American woman who's ever stood on this stage without a violin. And the fact that she could sort of offer that sort of throwaway line but get a reaction means there's something there, right, culturally that we're all witness to. Um, why do you think that there are so many East Asians in particular, but especially East Asian women who play the violin, for example, and the piano? What do you see any sort of, what are the implications of that particular trend? Well, so this is also kind of anecdotal. So I don't know if this actually happened, but there's a book by Norman Lebrecht. He talks about sort of the corrupt side of classical music industry. And one thing that he does talk about is how the industry at a certain point of desperation, because, you know, the classical music audience was shrinking, started to look out for uh, you know, very young, cute Asian girls playing mm -hmm. violin, and that this was a marketing ploy to, you know, put some excitement onto the classical music stage. So I'm not sure how accurate that is. I, I, I don't, I haven't seen that verified anywhere. Um, but I think there was this kind of wow factor, you know, these very young kids who could play very, very well, and they just seemed kind of exotic. Um, and, and then there were you know, very good musicians. But there were also just, uh, you know, a number of Asian violin students going to Juilliard at a very young age, starting with Dorothy DeLay. And there were other types of Dorothy DeLays in other places, in Taiwan and in Tokyo. And and so um, I think they all helped to generate just the number of students who are playing at that level. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. I am curious, though, because... I was lucky and I got to stay with Dorothy DeLay too, but I was one of many Asian um, female violinists, in particular, as it turns out at that time, Koreans, especially Korean Asian violinists, females. But what I experienced was a sort of sense of being perceived as somewhat interchangeable, that they, we were all kind of 
equated one with the other. Also, you mentioned in your article too this this sort of the stereotype of the model minority and how that's very specifically experienced amongst because you seem to have done surveys of of conservatory students that there seems to be something that's experienced but something that is not explicitly expressed or when it is um, and I found this too when it is expressed as reflected in sort of like the larger culture I found that I experienced some pushback and some of that pushback I found has to do with a general discomfort around conversations around race and sexism, just broadly, but also this idea that experiences of racism can't be possible if you are also, quote unquote, successful within the system. I don't know if there's a question in there, but just sort of if you would be comfortable sort of speaking to that a little bit, that experience. Sure. So, I mean, I think a lot of Asian musicians have expressed this feeling that somehow they were seen as robot-like, um, that they somehow are technically, you know, very proficient, but they don't have personality or they don't have soul. And, you know, it's not just what we perceive, but it, it, in my article, which turned into a chapter in my book, and I have some other chapters having to do with Asian musicians too, the, I actually have quotes from reviews of concerts, reviews of musicians. And so a lot of these attitudes have made it into print as well. So yes, there's some denial among some quarters. They, they say race has nothing to do with it, but there are people who say things that are quite blatantly racist. But it's almost as though, at least in the U.S. context, people don't really care that much about racism, I guess, Asians. You know, we are kind of the model minority, but also an invisible minority. Um, So, you know, making jokes at the expense of Asians is not seen nearly as problematic as making jokes against African-Americans or Latinos. Um, So I think that's, that's part of the problem. And then I think, you know, secondly, the classical music tradition is not so much about about you know the music- musicians making a lot of uh, noise about their personas, it's it's more about like, respecting the uh, composer's you know vision, and it's about just you know there are some parts of it that just demand a certain respect towards the music and the tradition, and so I think that also discourages musicians from speaking out, um, and a, and a lot of it is really it's 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 hard to pin down. I mean it's it's years of working with teachers going to competitions and festivals and somehow getting the sense that you're not 100% accepted. But then there's also so many Asians around you that, you know, it creates this very strange environment where, yes, you're part of it. And this practice of classical music is universal, but then you're not really a part of it. And I think that actually, you know, represents the way that Asians are treated in the U.S. in general. You know, it's, it's this, on the one hand, yes, you're, you know, you're like, honorary whites but on the other hand you're never going to be white and so you have to constantly negotiate this very tricky balancing act this sort of honorary or like secondary whiteness i think is an experience for a lot of asian people um in in america because there doesn't seem to be a space for these kinds of discussion and that was one of the things i really responded to in your writing that this idea of universality becomes a kind of weapon for for keeping us silent in a way because I've actually had I mean if I can share sort of a personal anecdote I've had people say to me to my face racism against Asians is just not a thing it doesn't exist within the context of classical music specifically 
And I've had one person I consider a friend or colleague whose mother even said to me exactly what you just said, which is, well, my child grew up being surrounded by Asians who were better than him and won prizes ahead of him and so on and so forth. So how can you possibly say that you're experiencing any sort of bias? Um, there's no evidence for that. And it's a it's a difficult space to be in. And you said that, you know, um, sort of derision, I don't remember exactly what the word is, but sort of derision or bias against Asians in the U.S. is not something that people really pay attention to, I guess, and jokes can be made at our expense, and there's not very much outrage. I mean, it feels like there's more and more spaces for different experiences, but I guess, especially when it comes to classical music, do you feel like there's like, I guess my question is, like, what do we do about that? <laughs> like, what do we do? How do we, how do we create those spaces? How do we have those conversations? Because, yeah, I think it, I think it's a, a very different kind of uh, sort of oppression than maybe other um, minority groups experience, but just as valid. They're just, it's just different. Right. So, you know, I mean, what, what, one thing that's heartening is that since my article came out, there have been other articles, there have been other scholarship about Asians in classical music and, and Asians in other genres of music as well. Um, so there are definitely people out there doing this kind of work. And then I think, you know, it's, it's just, it's just one of these things like representation in Hollywood where, you know, you also see this underrepresentation and this, you know, very, very little effort to really be inclusive of Asians in the same way that there's a lot more outcry over underrepresentation of other people of color. Um, but again, even there, you are starting to hear more and you're starting to see more Asian actors on the screen, on the big screen and the little screen. Uh, so I, I, I think it's small and perhaps incremental, but there are just such numbers coming out of Asia now. I mean, especially from China, that the classical music stage will just inevitably change. And in the meantime, in the US and in Europe, there's been a lot of cutback in terms of music education. Uh, so they're not producing as many musicians in, you know, these kind of traditional strongholds of classical music. So it's, it's, I mean, that's part of the, that's a big part of my book, that classical music is not the static thing. It's, it's constantly evolving. And so I just think it's going to look very different in a generation or two. And it might be that it's so Asian at that point that this kind of, you know, casual racism doesn't really have a place in it. But there'll probably be other kinds of racism, too. I mean, you know, <laughs> Asians are certainly as capable of racism as any other group. So I think, you know, it's, it's just it's, it's something that I, I'm glad that we're starting to talk about more openly. Because in the past, it seemed like with classical music, it was this almost sacred practice. And you couldn't talk about things like politics and race, even though they're very much there. So I just think, you know, having discussions around it is, is a healthy thing. I agree. Yeah. Um, sort of related to racism, and I want to get back to sort of like the experience of being an Asian woman in classical music, but could you talk a little bit about class? I mean, we sort of touched on that with the piano, but how do class and like the hope for upward mobility, how did that become really part of maybe what 
influenced this kind of influx of East Asian immigrant parents encouraging their children to play specifically classical music? Right. So again, I mean, there is this kind of association of classical music with a certain, you know, upper class. And it's, it's a tradition that's in some ways a marker of distinction that, you know, you, it, it takes a, quite a bit of resources, material resources, parental assistance to get to a certain level in classical music. So you have to, first of all, come from a place with, you know, some privileges. Um, and, and after 1965, when the U.S. changed its immigration laws to give uh, priority to people from middle class backgrounds, people with professional um, abilities, people with connections, uh, it a lot of the immigrants who came from East Asia at that, po at that point were already middle class or had the potential to become middle class. And so that was one big sea change. Um, and because a lot of these Asians ha are almost in some ways more European than the Europeans are, you know, because Europeans evolved and they, they're they not, most Europeans don't care that much about classical music. <laughs> but I, I feel like classical music is the thing that came to be associated with Western um, upper class. So a lot of immigrants coming to the U.S. maintain that sort of uh, hold on this as a symbol of, you know, having arrived and so they really encourage their kids to do that. And I also think that there's kind of a nice alignment between, you know, the way you get ahead is to get into certain schools and you have to, you know, go to tutoring schools after school and you have to just work really hard. You have to work harder than everyone else. So there, there is this kind of a nice um, symbiotic relationship between these values that a lot of East Asian immigrant parents bring with them. That to me definitely seems to connect with the way music arrived in Asia as a, as a sort of tool of imperialism. So one of the things that I'm interested in seeing too, even in Korea, for example, there's so much, I mean, this is sort of a tangent, but there's, there's so much plastic surgery, for example, that happens in Asia and so much of idealizing a kind of Western sense of beauty, a Western aesthetic. And by extension, as you said, like Western classical music kind of represents resources that are needed in order so that says something about the sort of people that you come from but also something there is something elitist still remaining about the art form and one of the trends that I think is happening very slowly but pretty pretty it's accelerating it seems that there are more and more um, like blending of genres and I think the sort of siloing of what a conservatory education provides a student is really changing what does that do for, for kind of the idealization of, of a Western classical music training? I've heard of Asian American rock groups, for example, where all of the members were classically trained and then they started playing something completely different, you know, and I, I think we have a lot of the training and the foundation to be able to play lots of different kinds of music. And then when it's really left up to us and our parents are no longer pushing us to do something or the other, so there are musicians who are branching out. Um, so, so I think that's, that's great. Um, but again, in, in other genres too, I mean, maybe, perhaps even more so in, in pop, pop and rock, there's not really a place for Asians. Um, you know, there's, there, I feel like in some ways in classical music, Asians are more accepted because it does fit into the sort of the model minority stereotype. But, you know, in, in hip hop or pop, 
there is this kind of incongruity between what the mainstream expects Asians are like and what artists are bringing to the table. Maybe you can talk about what you meant in your article by the double marginalization that Asians experience by even the way they're sort of represented in mainstream media. Like um, that's that to me is sort of what you're touching on, I think, like the idea that Asian musicians have a place in classical music because of what it means to be Asian, I guess. Right, right. So it, it, our success in classical music almost reinforces the model minority uh, stereotype for Asians. So it does keep certain musicians from really reaching the top because I, I do think there is kind of a bamboo ceiling even in classical music. That stereotype is so antithetical to what an artist should be like in other genres of music. It makes it really difficult for other Asians, other Asian artists and other musical genres to succeed. So um, I don't know if you remember, but Far East Movement had a big hit a few years ago. It was just really interesting that they, they all wear sunglasses in their videos. I mean, their Asian-ness is downplayed quite a bit. In Asian America, they were really, you know, a big deal because this was the first time an Asian group had actually reached the top of the charts. But, you know, it, it felt a little bit sad for me that they they did not really kind of put their face out there. I mean, literally, they weren't putting their face out there. There, there all, were also all these dance crews, yet they were all wearing masks. It was like fascinating how they felt like they had to wear masks and hide their, their true selves in order to succeed at that level. In another interview that I did with a um, jazz violinist named Zach Brock, he talks about how on Instagram there are these young people who are clearly conservatory trained. They subvert that training basically is what I think of it. Like any other sort of musical genre kind of is about like breaking the rules (laughs) and the classical training is very much about following the rules. It's so kind of regimented and hierarchical. And so here were these young people who were clearly conservatory trained and then they were doing things in other musical languages, but they were always wearing masks when they were doing them. What does that tell us about how we feel about Asian-ness, but also, you know, about identity, about being observed in ways that subvert, I guess, expectation for what, what it is we, we are supposed to do or like looking a certain way doesn't match what's actually coming out of the instrument, maybe? Right, because, you know, it, it's interesting that you should say that in other musical genres, they're breaking the rules, but there are still conventions to follow, right? So, you know, there are certain ways to look, certain ways to dress, certain kinds of music that's acceptable or not. Um, And so when you have Asian bodies that really don't conform to them, and you also have these stereotypes of Asians, like, you know, the emasculated male or the dragon lady, you know, Asian female, it's really hard to not be one of those and get any kind of notice, you know, and and it's not just about Asian stereotypes. It's also stereotypes about African-Americans and hip hop. I mean, they also have to conform to certain expectations. And white musicians trying to make it in hip hop, they also have to, you know, like negotiate their place in relation to their race. So it's, I think that everyone has to be aware of these things to some extent, but for Asians, it's, there hasn't really been a place in Western pop music. And even, you know, the success of someone like Psy, I feel like so much of that was playing into these mainstream expectations. He was being buffoonish and- So, yeah, so it's still very tricky. I mean, I I do think this recent sort of um, craze for BTS and K-pop groups, it seems to be changing the conversation somewhat, but there's a backlash there as well. 
I just was wondering if you had any thoughts to share about how Asian women are, I mean, fetishized generally, but especially in classical music. Um, so I, I have a short chapter in my book about Yuja Wang and the kind of major viewer in classical music reviews because of the way she dressed. She's a really interesting case study because she is phenomenally talented. She can play anything under the sun. And she also really demands to be looked at. I mean, she chooses outfits that are obviously going to get her notice. Um, but, you know, in, in other contexts, they wouldn't be that big a deal. You know, they're sexy. But, you know, if you if you go to Instagram any day, you'll find people revealing a lot more skin. But it's because it's classical music. And it's because she's Chinese. And she rep- she is part of this kind of invasion of Chinese pianists onto the classical music stage at a time when, you know, the West is not producing the same number of talented people. So it's it's just really fascinating to see how people react. On the one hand, a lot of classical music aficionados will say, we want people to get excited about, you know, young, fresh talent and, and you know, what better way to sell that than a sexy young woman. But a lot of people really kind of bristle at this and, and I think it is the fear of this kind of Chinese invasion. Um, you know, it's just the numbers are just kind of astounding. They estimate that there might be 60 million piano students in China, which is just an astounding number. And and so that really breaks this, this sort of idea that classical music is an exclusive art. Because I think some people really value it for that reason, you know, that it's not just about it being transcendent and beautiful, but it it is a marker of class distinction. And so when you have 60 million little Chinese kids playing this, you can't really talk about it being exclusive in the same way anymore. And she is bringing this sort of, you know, pop culture kind of flair to the way she dresses. She's also done some activities off the, you know, classical music stage that's much more kind of comic. And there's been some criticism of that. But, you know, she, she is definitely shaking things up quite a bit. So it's it's interesting. It's 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 as though she's almost playing this role of a female classical musician in a way that brings to the fore these these feelings that I think a lot of us had that you know somehow we are considered to be just vessels and we're not asked to assert our individuality. Um, and she's she's doing it in her own way, and it's it's quite interesting how much controversy she's courted as a result. Do you think that there's can be challenges to finding individuality when you are kind of indoctrinated in both kind of an artistic culture of classical music, but also the sort of traditional, more collectivist East Asian mindset to be controversial, to break the rules, to be more individualistic for people? I think that's kind of the balance that a lot of classical musicians in general are grappling with. Because I think this, you know, kind of centuries-old tradition of playing the same war horses feels stale to a lot of people, especially younger musicians. And so they are trying to bring different kinds of approaches to the music making. I don't know. I mean, I I wonder if in some ways it frees you up to be a little bit more risk-taking if you're not really accepted in the first place. So I, I, I do feel like there are younger Asian musicians who you know, 
are playing with their image. They're doing different things repertoire-wise. I think that it's all of classical music is changing that way. And, you know, there are just new ways of learning about new artists. Pe- people are making videos. It's, it's, you can't really follow the same rules you did 20 years ago and have and be guaranteed any kind of success. I mean, even you doing your podcast, you know, like I, I think this is you're, you're reaching a different audience this way. And I think, you know, it seems it seems very smart to be doing this sort of thing because you can't just practice in a practice room for eight hours and hope an agent's going to call you up and give you lots of gigs. I think that's one of the challenges that I've found just for myself, like the kind of realization that whatever Kool-Aid I've drunk <laughs> is no longer sufficient for having the kind of career, number one, that I was trained to believe I could have and number two it's no longer sufficient spiritually morally and intellectually and so part of this podcast is about you know what are people doing and how are they doing that and more importantly for me I'm interested in the process of how you make that turn because I think it's not always easy to make that turn not for all of us I think for a lot of people that process is obscured from public or not really conversed about because it's like, oh, well, so-and-so, you just sort of magically decide to do something else. And and my interest is in, I, I think that there is a tension there to like leave something behind that you've invested so much of your life and to make a shift is not easy for everybody. Right, right. That is the problem. So I, I do think that the successful classical musicians of the future will be the ones who are creative. I, I see my old students and they, they seem to be doing a variety of things in order to survive to make a living in music. A lot of it has to do with making social connections. It's it definitely there's no playbook anymore, I think, you know, in terms of how you make a career. And and honestly, I don't know that they had it so good back then either. You know, the, these musicians who just toured all year round, it just it sounded pretty miserable to me. So I think in some ways having to be creative and make up a life for yourself that's made up of patchwork opportunities is is maybe not the worst thing in the world. I also don't think that it's unique to classical music at all. I think it's, you know, you're seeing so much of a sort of, what are they calling it? The the gigging industry, the gigging lifestyle um, Mm. that we're all having. I mean, things are just changing very, very quickly. But I am sort of interested in the tension sometimes of, especially if you're temperament, mostly just because in some of my encounters, specifically with young Asian women, that we're not socialized to break rules and to be flexible necessarily and to think outside of the box in the same ways. And I have found that sometimes that presents a sort of struggle for people. And that's something I've experienced internally, some conversations I've had. And so so I'm curious about that space. Like, how do we address that? How do we create community with each other so that we start to become stronger and able to take risks? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, one thing that I found really interesting when I was in college, I tried to take some jazz piano lessons, and I just could not improvise. I just could not do it. And I feel like everything in our training is is making us not be improvisational. And so I thought, why aren't we taught this from the beginning? You know, it just I think that would go such a long ways in making us more flexible musicians, but also flexible people. Absolutely. I mean, that what you just said, uh, the experience you shared is one that I've had and one that a lot of people that I know have had. And it's it kind of shakes your sense of yourself because 
on the outset, we've all been told that we went to the best schools, right? The best, best, best everything. We got the best training and we're classically trained and all this. But yes, improvisation, which definitely has in the past always been part of a classical musician's training, right? Mozart, Beethoven, Haydn, all of them. And Beethoven was like a world-class improviser. That's how he first became a star. And I think that that training is slowly sort of coming back, but it's coming back through completely like backdoors and sideways into the conservatory training. And I completely agree with you because it can be so demoralizing when you can play anything that's written <laughs> but then to sit down and have an idea of your own and suddenly there seems to be nothing there that's really really can be quite earth-shattering I think a lot of people need to know is like improvisation is a skill just like playing scales is a skill and uh, if you're not number one encouraged I mean so much of it is psychological too isn't it like making that shift and so I can really relate to that experience <laughs> <laughs> well, I think even, even the word conservatory, I mean, you know, it's all about conserving something. And I think that's a mindset that we need to let go of because the world is just going to go on without. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a repertoire that should be valued and treasured for a long time. But just the kind of adulation around certain composers and and the, the idea that they are like sacred text. I mean, there's something really kind of, you know, it's, it's not the healthiest way to go. So I wrote a little bit about the Silk Road project too. And, and mm -hmm. what I noted there, because they have these concerts where they, they improvise and they, they, you know, these are musicians coming from very different musical backgrounds and they just really listen hard to each other. And then they improvise and they create these new works that are true hybrids. And, you know, classical music is just one of the sort of the musical tradition that's represented there. And so I like this idea that classical music is just one a part of the musical landscape, that it's it's capable of absorbing other musics, it's capable of, you know, cultural exchange. Um, it's just another sort of resource. It's another archive of music. Yeah, sometimes I just get sort of pissed off, honestly, about like <laughs> all the hours and hours of my life that I put into doing a thing that, I mean, I'm lucky I've made a life and continue to make a life, you know, doing the thing I was trained to do. But it is really upsetting to be like, oh, I, I need to continue to push my skills out if I want to not only be relevant, but to be happy and yeah, I've put myself in extremely uncomfortable situations because of that. <clears throat> Musically yeah, uncomfortable. And, you know, so so I've recently started hanging out with some amateur pianists and they are at all at a huge range of abilities. And, you know, because you practice so much as a young person, you just have a certain technical baseline that is just way more advanced than anybody else is going to achieve. And you can play music that is so beautiful because you have that technical ability. So I don't know that it's a waste. And I also think, I mean, now that I don't have to do it, I find it really pleasurable to sit there, practice the same four measures for an hour. There's something really <laughs> meditative about it. I mean, I think that's what meditation is. So it, I guess it, it just depends on how you look at it. I've had conversations about this with other musician friends who have classical training but make their livings or more of their musical life is outside of the classical mainstream and they always note how 
miserable a lot of classical musicians are and I would say that that I've always sort of noticed that like my friends who play in top tier orchestras so many of them you know put their instruments away the second the season is over and don't touch it for two months and and sort of circling back to what you said about how when it's your profession the same kind of joy it's difficult to to retain but I do think part of that too is because if you're playing in a very traditionalist classical music construct like an orchestra there is actually very little room for you there is no room for you to be anything other than a cog in this machine yeah and I I know soloists and you know I did a lot of soloing in that it's the same sort of thing there's such a priority put on the execution of somebody else's ideal there's kind of micro improvisation that happens in classical music all the time don't get me wrong but the target is very specific you Mm -hmm. know you can't actually change notes or rhythm or anything (laughs) within you know within the majority of the music um that's like the the sort of bread and butter of the of the tradition so it's a very, you know, vertical kind of hierarchical structure where you have the conductor up at the top and it's usually some old white guy and, you know, and he rules with an ironclad hand and, you know, I can imagine why it would feel like not such a happy place to be a part of an organization like that. And for anyone to make it into a professional orchestra, they've spent a huge chunk of their life devoted to this art. And you spend a lot of hours thinking about how do you interpret this music? How do you become an artist? And so then to have that all quashed when you join an orchestra, that must be quite painful. As you said, in a generation or two, it will look very different. But classical musicians and the skills and the the level to which we develop such incredible critical thinking and the ability to deconstruct and think sort of conceptually and structurally of things, like all of those skills are things that we... I think very often classical musicians feel like, oh, but this is what I do, and these skills can't be applied to other things. And I think especially somebody like you, you're such an example of how you have you have a performance degree, but you have your musicology degree, and you also have your art history degree, and like all of these things, and you're an academic, and you're you know a speaker, and you do all of these things, and you can be such an example of, of actually how all of those skills are incredibly valuable. All of that time that we spend is really valuable, even if you don't end up being a classical musician for your profession. There's nothing like excelling in classical music to teach your discipline at a very young age. I mean, once you've gotten used to practicing six hours a day, doing almost anything else feels pretty easy. So, I mean, I know that when I started my PhD program in musicology, there were students in my class who had just come out of undergrad and they were just struggling just to get the you know minimum done. And I just feel like it was a breeze, not because I'm smarter than they are, but because I had gotten used to this work ethic at the conservatory and that was just normal. I mean, I would just get everything done really quickly. So, I mean, I I feel like you do gain the skills that should guarantee you success in almost anything else. But I don't know that we're always cognizant of that um, because, you know, we've been like kind of in this tunnel of classical music (laughs) for so long. And so, yeah, I think I think you have to take a step back. And then it's also about sunk costs, right? Because you do spend so many years devoted to this. It's, it makes it really hard to leave. Absolutely. But, you know, there are definitely other ways to go. 
even outside of music. And in fact, I've heard that most students who graduate from conservatories don't end up in music eventually. So it's my hope that this podcast, part of the reason I started it was that I, I wanted to have in the world the kind of resource that I wish had existed when I was younger and growing up even just some of the conversations that I imagined or was looking to have. So what kind of advice would you give your younger self to help her on her journey if you had the opportunity to chat with her? I would say that um, be really grateful to have these amazing things in your life, like music. Don't feel like it necessarily has to be become your profession. And um, just surround yourself with people who also are really passionate about something I think that's really important too. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I've returned to playing the piano is because I found a community of people who get really excited by it. And so I've rediscovered my pleasure in it. But, you know, the thing that always did bother me about piano was just the sort of the isolation of, of it. And so I, I, I just think it's really important to be in a community and it's important to always have something that's beautiful. You know, like, yes, it's really hard to make a living in, in music, but you also don't want your life to be just about earning money either. So it's, it's about making a space for all the different things. Thank you to my guest today, Mina Yang. You can learn more about Mina on her website, minayang.com. Also visit my blog, isitrecessyet.com, for show notes and more information about Mina and my other guests. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Is It Recess Yet on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. Also consider writing a review and rating this podcast to help build the Is It Recess Yet community and to find like-minded listeners. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.